I'm gonna surprise some of you with this. You didn't even like wear your extra special clothes. But if you are helping us with soccer club in any way, shape, or form, whether that be the barbecue, you have gone shopping for gifts or for our store, whatever, will you come up here? You don't have to stand all the way up on the stage. Yep, Deb, that's you. Um, don't make me call you out. Tucker, yeah, good work. Okay, that's good. Becky, Becky, I see you. I, yep, she's like, oh, are you serious? This is what you get when you volunteer at Brookview. Come on up, everybody. Don't be afraid to stand on the stage. I just said you didn't have to. Nice. Uh, do I see Debbie Mar Mork? Do I see Debbie Mork sitting? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, I won't. That's my last call out. Craig. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I said it was my last, but then I had one more. You guys, we have an incredible team ready to invest in kids, in families, from shopping for the store, setting out the store, checking in kids, coaching kids, barbecuing a million burgers, um, and I am just so thankful. Here is one of the realities that I was reminded of this morning. We are still living in the midst of COVID, and we have lost a couple of families as well as coaches. And um, that is the reality of our week. And so what I want to do is just pray for us this morning. Pray for the impact that we might have, how God will use us, and then ultimately for protection as we go. Um, and so would you join in praying for this team with me? God, we have planned, we have prepared, we have put ourselves out there, and now we leave it up to you. And we ask that you move among us, God. Would you help us to have our eyes open to see the value in these kids and these families and to connect with them? God, I pray that you would, they would see you lived in us as we do everything that we do um, this coming week. God, we ask for your protection over our health, over all the small details. God, you see it all, and you are powerful. And so we ask for you to have your watchful eye on us. God, equip us, empower us to do the things that we need to do. And in the spaces where it's not as we hoped it would be, God, would you move? And this is a team of people that I love working with because this is our Brookview family. We just adjust and we figure out ways to link arms together and to do what you're calling us to do. And so as we do that, would you move among us, God? We need you. We don't want to do this alone. It's your, na your name I pray. Amen. All right, give these guys a hand as they make their way to their seats. And team, I have your shirts and things for you on your way out the door this morning, so don't forget to get those in the lobby. Huh? Lost people? What? Huh? We've lost people? Oh, nobody died. Nobody died. That is a very good clarification. Thank you, Alicia. They're just resting so far with mild cases. <laughs> now that's all I can think about.
So I'm going to move on to communication cards. I say it every week. I know the drill. This will be easy for me. We love hearing from you. If you want to make any comments about these announcements, uh, go to brookviewchurch.com forward slash contact and fill out that connect card. And um, we'll just love hearing from you. That's all I got. I'm getting out of here. So we're, we're in this series that we're calling Renewed Identity, and it's really all about kind of two questions. Who, who does God say you are, and what does that mean for how you live? And today what I want to do is I want to think about the voice that opposes God's voice. And I don't often spend a lot of time, if you've been around Brookview for a long time, you know I don't often spend a lot of time teaching on this, but you guys, today we are going to talk about the devil. Come on. Now, Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil comes in John chapter 8. So we're going to start by reading through what he said in John chapter 8. And Jesus is teaching his disciples here, but as is often the case, there's a larger crowd, and that includes uh, some religious leaders that are also kind of in the distance, arms folded, listening in. So here we go. John chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. It will set you free. So, so far, Jesus has been talking directly to his disciples, but now the, the crowds and the religious leaders start to chime in, and they start objecting to what he's saying. It says, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. Really? Like, have they read the Old Testament? <laughs> so they say, how can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, say it, say it with me, you will be free in indeed. Okay, there we go again. It's about freedom. Jesus continues, I, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in my father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. And so we're left to wonder, who is their father? Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, which is Jesus for... Wrong answer. <laughs> if you were Abraham's children, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I have heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. And again, we're thinking, who is their father? We're not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Now, the Greek word that's translated like illegitimate children was much harsher. And it seems to be an innuendo that they're making about Joseph and Mary, uh, Mary and his parentage. They're implying 
Look, we're not bastards like you, Jesus. The only father that we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, wait for it, the devil. That's like on on the list of things you don't want to hear Jesus say to you. that'd That'd be at the top. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. How are we doing this morning? Welcome to church. Like, it's like, give me a bullhorn, let's go. Give me a soapbox. I'm like, okay, so right out of the gate, let's notice a few things about Jesus' take on the devil, some very simple things. First off, for Jesus, let's start here, there is a devil. Uh, The Greek word translated devil means the slanderer or accuser, and the devil is one of many names used by Jesus and the New Testament writers for a creature that we read about all through the scriptures. Jesus also calls him the Satan, calls him the evil one, the tempter, the destroyer, the deceiver, the serpent of old. And notice that all of these are titles, not like proper names. So as we hear Satan and we think it's, it's like a proper name, like Bill or Bob or whatever, right? It's not, it's not a proper name. Um, it's, it's a description or a title in the same way that Jesus is a proper name, Christ is not a proper name, right? Some of you are like, what? That's his last name. No, it's not. <laughs> it's a title. It's Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. He is not, hi, I'm, hello, Mr. Christ, right? So, so it, it, for, for the, it is the Satan and it is not, just in the same way that the Christ is not a proper name, it's a title, it is a pro, it's, a, it's a title. And it means, what it means is the adversary or the accuser. Now some scholars think that it's kind of a subtle dig from Jesus and the writers of scripture that this creature doesn't even get a name. Uh, three different times, Jesus calls this creature the ruler of the world Um, The Greek word translated ruler was a word that just meant like the highest ranking position in a government. So to Jesus, this creature has tremendous power and influence in our world. To Jesus, he is not a myth. He is not a figment of the imagination. He's not a holdover from a superstitious pre-scientific age. And he is also not a, a little red guy with a pitchfork that sits on your shoulder. Okay? For Jesus, number one, there is a devil. He's, he's an invisible but real intelligence that is behind the evil that is so prevalent in our world, behind much of that evil. Now, if you're, okay, now if you're listening to this and you're like, that sounds crazy. You're, you're like, okay, Jesus, like, you are a great teacher and you have lots of great things to say about like, love and, and kindness the golden rule and forgiveness and compassion and mercy and loving our neighbor and all of that, that's great. But this stuff about the devil, Jesus, it's just ridiculous because here's the thing, Jesus, now we know better. Now we have like Wikipedia. 
right? And, I, and I'm like, and like I went to college. It was, I took some college classes, and I had a professor, and, and I took science, and, and so, or whatever it might be for you. And if that's you, I just want to say, like, man, I totally get it. I totally get it. Talking about the, the devil sounds crazy. But the, the question that I want to ask is simply this. What if, just what if, what if Jesus knows better than you or I the true nature of reality? What if Jesus and the writers of Scripture and many of the ancient writers and teachers down through history and millions of people still today in Asia and Africa and South America, what if they somehow have a lens into a dimension of reality, reality that like we in the Western secular world are blind to? So all I'm, all I'm asking is just suspend judgment and open your mind to the possibility. Because for Jesus, like if you're going to follow Jesus, for Jesus, there is a devil. Okay, secondly, for Jesus, number two, his end goal, the devil's end goal is death. And Jesus says he is a murderer from the beginning. The, the scriptures teach us that essentially Satan is at war with God himself. He's at war with God's good vision for our world. For you and for me and for people and for humanity and for all of nature, he is at war with God's good vision for our world. As Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the what? To the full. Whatever it means to have life to the full. And this is where Jesus is like, I can tell you what that is. The devil's aim is to destroy that. So for Jesus, number one, there's a devil. Number two, his end goal is death. And then three, and then finally, his primary means is lies. So if his end goal is to tear down everything good, to destroy life, to destroy your soul and my soul and society and love and everything that's beautiful and good, the primary way that the devil destroys life is through lies. So can we get verse 44 back up on the screen? Jesus calls the devil the father of lies, the origin point of deception itself. In fact, Jesus says that lies are his native language. Now, we need to get our minds around this. His primary means of bringing destruction is lies. I don't think that this is how most of us think about the way that the devil works in our world. I don't think it's how we think about fighting the devil. We don't think of lies and deceptions as kind of the main issue. Um, Jen's dad is an amazing guy. And um, he's, he's one of the people that I most respect in the world. He is a devoted Christ follower. He is also one of the biggest jokers that I've ever met. And so before we started Brookview, Jen and I were still living in Bellingham, and we led a, uh, like a small group, a life group for young married couples. And Jen's dad had this annoying habit of always calling us on group night in the middle of our group that was hosted in our home. Now, those of you that are under 30 will not believe this. But in 1998, we did not have cell phones with silent vibrate features. <laughs> we, we did, in 1998, we had an amazing technology, though, was called caller ID. 
So the phone would ring and everyone in the group would kind of go silent and Jen would look at the caller ID and see that it was her dad and then Jen would answer the phone and she would say, yes, Satan. And after like four or five times of doing this, right, he's like, oh, no, it's your group night. I did it again. Sweetheart, I'm so sorry. Oh, man. <laughs> but that, that whole exchange kind of exemplifies how Christians often think about spiritual warfare. Like every problem or distraction or roadblock, it, that's Satan. And, and you listen to people talk sometimes, right? You listen to people talk, and it's like, man, I was really under attack this week from the devil, Really? That sounds serious, man. Like, what went down? Well, my alarm didn't go off and I overslept on Thursday. <laughs> wow, that was Satan. Are you, are you sure you did, just didn't set it? Yeah, definitely Satan. I was under attack. No, man, it gets worse. You're like, the whole week is just Satan everywhere. I was on the drive to church and I got in a fight with my wife. It was Satan. And you're like, uh, maybe that was just you, man. <laughs> no, no, man, I was like, and, and then it, like, I got a flat tire. I was on my way to my life group and I got a flat tire. And you're like, okay, but maybe it was just a flat tire. Like, those happen. So when we think of spiritual warfare, we, we sort of envision oftentimes this sort of Christian paranoia. Or we can limit it to like some sort of uh, exorcism from the Gospels, right? Or something like, like for any of you that saw the exorcist movies, whoo, you know, stuff. From, or maybe you think of a demon just like freaking out a child in the middle of the night. Or, or maybe we think of some kind of inexplainable affliction, a disease that just sort of comes out of nowhere. Or is, you know, the doctors can't figure out what's going on. Or a natural disaster, a tsunami or an earthquake or, or something like that. So we have these images in our minds of, of how the devil wages war in this world. And, and I just want, there might be some truth to some of that stuff. I'm not saying that the devil never uses stuff like that. Here's all I'm saying, and so please hear me on this. In Jesus' most in-depth teaching on the devil, he doesn't mention any of that. Instead, it's an intellectual debate with the thought leaders of the day, and the discussion is strictly about truth and lies. Jesus says, you belong to your father, talking about the religious leaders, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, so there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Okay, so let's step back, like 30,000 feet. For Jesus, number one, there is a devil, and he has tremendous influence in our world. Number two, his end goal is death. The death of souls, the death of relationships, the death of societies, the death of love. And number three, his primary means is lies. So his primary strategy against you, your family, our society is lies. So you, like the demon, the disease, the, the flat tire on the way to church, all of that is like third, fourth, fifth tier stuff. Not that he doesn't ever use any of that. It's just not his primary weapon. His go-to strategy, his signature move, his MO is lies or deception. Therefore, Jesus sees spiritual warfare as primarily a battle to believe truth over lies. Now, while it can encompass many things, it is primarily 
a fight to believe truth over lies. And um, so <clears throat> before we move to the next thing, I, I just want to clear something up. Some of you might be wondering, like, okay, so wait. Why did Jen answer the phone when her dad called in the middle of a small group? Why didn't she just let him leave a message? And again, if you're under 30, that probably makes no sense to you. But in 1998, we had this other amazing technology. It was called answering machines. And if you let it ring, the answering machine would pick up and everybody in the room could hear the message that was being left. You guys, how many of you guys remember this? Oh, it's the good old days. And so Jen's dad is a big joker, and sometimes he's not very PC. And he loved to leave insanely long messages. And because we had no idea what he might say, in fact, we were terrified of what he might say <laughs> or how long it might go, it was just way less distracting to actually answer the phone and say, yes, Satan. And that was kind of it. Okay, back to spiritual warfare. The, the devil's go-to strategy is lies or deception. And so spiritual warfare is primarily a battle to believe truth over lies. And, and this leads to the question that's been asked by a lot of people. It's the question that Pilate asked Jesus. Well, what is truth? And we live in a world where everybody's asking that. Well, what is truth? You have your truth. I have my truth. You speak your truth. I'll speak my truth. Here's the best definition I know. The best definition I know of truth is that truth is reality. Truth equals reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. And what is a lie? Well, if truth is reality, then lies are just unreality. When we say something is a lie, what we mean is that statement, that claim, that tweet, right, or that whatever doesn't correspond to reality. And now we all live from what psychologists call mental maps of reality. Now, in some instances, they're like, these are like literal maps of the world, uh, like the route to work or school or the grocery store. And so the way it works is if your mental map is true, if it corresponds to reality, then you can navigate yourself where you need to be. In the same way, we have mental maps for all of life, though. We have mental maps for how to navigate sexuality, how to navigate money, for how to navigate relationships and marriage and parenting. We have, we have mental maps for how to do friendship, for how to best use our time, for how to ascend in our career or how to best do career. We have, we have mental maps for how to enjoy vacation. Right, Kim, where are you? Hawaii. We navigate vacation. We enjoy, like, so every area of our lives is governed in some way or um, is we navigate it by mental maps. And, and our mental maps are no more than just a collection of ideas. So what are ideas? Well, ideas by definition are simply assumptions about reality, right? It, 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 it's an assumption or theory about how life actually works, or at least how it works best. And every day, we all, followers of Jesus or not, navigate a world of ideas. Most of our life is just ideas, right? Democracy is an idea. Human rights is an idea. Gender equality is an idea. Theology is a collection of ideas about God and about how the world works. And our theological ideas come together to form a mental map by which we navigate day-to-day -day life. Now, you, you may be an atheist. You go, well, I don't have a 
theological mental map. Yes, you do. You may be a Christian, you may be a Buddhist, you may be an agnostic or whatever, but your ideas, whatever they happen to be, they form the mental map that you use to navigate the world. You have ideas about God or the non-existence of God. You have ideas about humanity or about love or about sexuality or about what makes a person valuable or ideas about where you would go to find happiness. Your, your mental map then may be accurate, but it also may be inaccurate. When we believe truth, then we show up to reality well. But when we believe lies, then we cannot show up in a way that's congruent to reality. So here's what Jesus believed and taught about truth and life. It could be summarized this way. The more our mental maps align with reality, the more we will discover life. So let's go back to the devil and and what he's doing in the world. Jesus calls the devil a liar, the father of lies. And by using this title, right, he's, he's referencing Genesis 3, Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. When the serpent enters the story to take down the man and woman, have you noticed it doesn't come at them with a disaster or with a scary vision? It doesn't come at them with a flat tire or a distraction? It doesn't come at them with a disease or pain? It comes at them with an idea, a distortion, a lie. His original assault on humanity is a lie. It's a lie about who God is. It's a lie about who humanity is. And it's a lie about what will lead to life and joy and happiness. But here's the thing, and this is a really big deal. Lies by themselves. Someone can speak millions of lies to you. Lies by themselves have no power over us. Lies only have power if we believe them and live them. For example, if you believe the lie that you are unlovable, right, that you're like dirty or unworthy of love and respect, however that lie comes to you, maybe a parent wound or maybe you were bullied or teased as a child or maybe your body didn't fit the cultural ideal or maybe your personality didn't fit the cultural ideal, however that came to you, and it is a lie to be sure, Okay, you're not unlovable. You're not unworthy of love and respect. You're a, you're a human being that is made in the image of God that is adored by him. But if you believe that lie, and then you begin to live as if that lie is true, and you let it affect the way that you interact with people, and you let it affect how you interact with your peers and, and with the opposite sex, and how you let it affect how you engage in community, then that's when that lie begins to have power over you. And so maybe you become defensive and, and, and you, you start pulling back and you're not emotionally available or maybe you become cold or hard or kind of standoffish. And as a result, what happens is you become a person who is more difficult for people to enjoy, a little harder to connect with. Now, you are, you're still loved by God, but the lie has come in and has begun to take root in your life. Another example, if you believe the secular Western idea that you are nothing more than an animal with time and chance on your side, that all human morality is nothing more than a social construct, if you believe that and then you begin to live as if it's true, that's when you give it power over you. And here's something else. While the devil's primary strategy is lies, the most damaging lies are, 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 are not the ones that have like no emotional value. It's, it's not like 
the devil's just in your ear going, just kind of whispering like, Elvis is alive. <laughs> Believe it. Believe. Live as if it's true. <laughs> right? Some of you are just the whispering voices. You're like, that's creepy. <laughs> Talking about the devil and you're creeping me out, man. Now, see, like that may be a deceitful idea. It may be a lie, but the thing is, I don't know about you. For me, I'm not emotionally connected to it. It doesn't feed that part of my soul that wants to resist God. Like if, it's, if Elvis is alive, that has no emotional bearing on my day-to-day -day life. Who cares? So when the devil comes at us with lies, they're aimed at an emotional center in us and at an emotional response. And they target, usually they target a deep longing in us for happiness. This, this is what makes the devil so crafty. He brings deceitful ideas that play to our specific uh, desires, and this is what makes it so powerful, so hard to identify, and so hard to resist. Mostly, we choose destructive things, not because we're like, you know, I just want to do something evil. No, we, we choose destructive things because we think, here's what we think, we think they'll make us happy. Right? I mean, think about it. We sin because we think it will make us happy. Most of us don't sin out of, like, duty or self-discipline. You know, most of us are not like, oh man, it's 10 p.m. and I'm really tired, but I just, I need a lust. It's just like, I don't want to, you know, but I, I really should. It's just the right thing to do. So like I put it in my calendar, my phone alarm's going off because I'm trying to be disciplined and I really don't feel like it, but I, I guess I better have a lust. No, we, we sin because we want to be happy and it's a lie that we buy into about how to get there. So the, the really big question that affects everything is this. What do you believe is the right path to happiness? What, what is your mental map of how you will navigate this life to be able to find happiness? Now, Jesus believed that there is a way to life, but he also believed that there is a way to destruction. Wide is the road to destruction, Jesus said, and many are on it. Narrow is the road that leads to life, and few find it. Jesus came as a truth teller, and he invites us to learn his way from him. To follow Jesus is to trade in your mental map and that of your culture or your society or your, the fa your family of origin, what your parents, or, or, or even your church at times. Right? There's times where the church gets way off is to trade in all of those mental maps for the mental map of Jesus into, into how we get into joy and beauty and life. The ultimate question for you about Jesus is not like, do you believe in him? You're like, it's not? No, it's not. Here, I want to let you guys in on a little secret. Satan believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. James said it like this. He said, you believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. There is a very practical difference between, at least in, in our culture, between belief and trust. I mean, it's, it's not God's ultimate goal to get you to ascend to the idea that he, he exists. It's, it's not Jesus' ultimate goal for you to believe that, that he's God's son. 
The, the end game isn't for you to believe that he's the Messiah or that he died on the cross for your sins or even that he was raised to life on the third day. Those are like really important things, don't get me wrong. But those are not the end goal. The goal is that you would actually discover how much you're loved. The goal is that you'd, you'd learn to trust him, that you would make him your teacher and that through him you would discover life, as Jesus said, life to the full. The fullest joy and meaning and community and purpose. Like, this is what he's trying to lead us toward. The fullest, kind, the fullest kind of lasting happiness. And Jesus insisted this is possible. But to know it, to like yada it, as we talked about last week, the only way into it is through Jesus. It is to trust him, to seek him, to learn from him to learn from him about reality, to let him reshape your mental maps of, of all things, and then to live from a place of truth that leads to life in the full. And Jesus doesn't want you to, to live your life like, okay, he doesn't teach about the devil. He doesn't want us to walk around afraid of the devil. But on the other hand, it would be wise to give him some respect. Because the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, and he's good at it. But there's another that's come to give life to the full, and he's wiser and, and more powerful still. The question for you and me is, is, will I trust him? Will I really? Will I trust him? Will I seek him and trust him and listen to him? His teaching has no power for me until I believe it enough to actually live into it. So you get to choose what you listen to. And there are a lot of voices in our world, are there not? There are a lot of voices promising life. And so the question is, which voice really is aligned with reality? Who is it that's gonna lead you to life to the full? I mean, what if Jesus is trying to lead you to something that is like beyond beautiful? And what if you will only experience it to the degree that you trust him? I mean, what if your understanding of what leads to happiness pales compared to his? What, what, if, what if he sees all kinds of things you don't see? What if he knows all kinds of things you don't know? And what if he loves you so much that he has given everything for you? And I, I think that for a lot of us, like, here's where this started to make more sense to me. It's when I became a parent, right? That kind of changes your view. Um, I, th I can relate to this when it comes to, to kids. And, and really, here's the thing, too. The younger they are, the less they understand reality. Have you noticed? The younger they are, the more they need us to come alongside them and show them the way. I, I want to close with an example of this that um, some of you have heard before. Like, if you've been around Brookview for a long time, um, you may have heard me reference this story before. Um, but I think it illustrates what we're talking about this morning really well. Um, when my daughter Kate, who's now 23, was in kindergarten, are you kidding me? <laughs> Keller, did you know you were going to chase her and date her for six years? Yeah, heck no. Uh, that was a weird aside, sorry, dude. <laughs> when, she was, when she was in kindergarten, her, her class was going to go on a fall field trip to the, the pumpkin patch. And so they were calling the, the field trip Pumpkin Day. And her teacher just hyped it all up. I mean, there's going to be like, there's going to be hay rides, and there's going to be cider, and there's going to be treats, and you're going to be able to, kids, children, kids, you're going to be able to pick out your very own pumpkin. 
And so Kate was beside herself. It was like she came home from school for a week. It was like all she could talk about, pumpkin day. It turned out that Jen's dad was also planning something kind of cool. He wanted to take all of his grown children and their children, all of them, to Disney World for a week. It was going to be all expenses paid for all of us. Some of you are like, her dad is wealthy. Yes. (laughs) Yes, he is. Um, So, unfortunately, the bad news was we would be in Florida for Pumpkin Day to go to Disney World. She would have to miss Pumpkin Day. When we broke this to Kate, it was unbearable. Like, she literally went up to her room and she wept and wept and wept for hours. Then after a while, she she stopped crying. She came downstairs and she had kind of this hopeful look on her face. And she says, okay, what if you guys could find someone for me to stay with while you all go to Florida? (laughs) So we, we said, you... You want to stay home from Disney World? She said, yep, I choose Pumpkin Day. And we're like, no, 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 no. No, no, you really don't want that. At, at Disney, they have like crazy awesome rides and candy and babe, it's Florida. Like it's going to be sunny and warm and there's, we're staying at a nice hotel and there's going to be a beautiful pool. And listen, Disney is the happiest place on earth. And you, you have to trust us on this. Pumpkin Day does not compare to Disney World. You guys, she wasn't having it. She was like, nope. Find somebody for me to stay with while you guys are gone. Now, for me, as I think about that, like now, in retrospect, it's not all that hard to, to imagine why she felt that way. Because she had seen tons and tons of pictures at school in her classroom of previous Pumpkin Days. And, and the kids were all hyped about it. All of her friends were hyped about it, talking about what they're going to do on the bus and what they're going to do when they get there and the songs they're going to sing, the cider they're going to drink. And it was what everybody was doing. And it was immediate. And it was right in front of her. Disney World had not received that level of hype. So for five-year-old Kate, it's just, it was sort of a vague concept. She couldn't really picture it very well. But Pumpkin Day, it felt very real to her. So the time came and we finally said, all right, fine, you can stay with Susie. And we left Kate behind. <laughs> Do you believe that? No. <laughs> Here's what happened. There was an emergency that came up with Jen's dad, and we had to postpone the trip to later in the year. So guess what, you guys? Kate was able to do both Pumpkin Day and Disney. And I remember the day then that I picked her up from school after Pumpkin Day, and I was like, how was it? And she was just like, meh. <laughs> she was like, it rained, it was cold, it was muddy. Look at my boots, I have mud all over them. I'm like, yeah, they're in my car. And she's like, and they, and they ran out of cider, and it turned out, you know, so it was just like, it turned out that Pumpkin Day was not all that she had imagined it would be. But try to picture f- with me for a second. Um, Try to assume that there actually was a conflict. And imagine that she could only do, she really would have to choose between Pumpkin Day or Disney World. And then imagine that we, as her parents, like, let her choose. And instead of being the tyrannical parents that we are, (laughs) 
we allowed her to choose and stay, you know, stay behind with a friend. And imagine that she, she, she went, she went to Pumpkin Day. And imagine that the weather was great, like it was just a great day. And she, she had great weather, a great day, great cider, hayrides, sing-alongs, uh, whatever the games are on the bus and the whole, the whole and, and imagine she got the perfect pumpkin. Okay, imagine if, if that was the, the scenario. Then she might have been like, kind of going forward, she might have been like, you know what? Pumpkin Day was pretty great. And, and maybe when we got home, she would have been like, Mom and Dad, thank you so much for letting me stay and make my own choices. You're the best parents in the world. Because at five years old, she would have no idea what she just missed. She, she didn't really have a concept of Disney World. Right now, as her parents, we would know, and so we would be really sad for her, and we would be really sad that she was not with us and with her siblings for, for that whole experience. Like, we would just have an ache for her the entire trip. Like, oh, man, everything we're doing, it's just like, oh, I wish Kate was here. Like, I wish she was here experiencing this. But if Kate chose Pumpkin Day and we allowed it, there's a sense in which she would never know what she missed out on. There's a, and I feel like, you guys can see where I'm going with this. I feel like this is kind of how it goes with us and Jesus. Like he's inviting us to trust him and go on an adventure. But so often, what we end up doing is choosing our own version of Pumpkin Day. We, we want the thing that's tangible, that we can see, that we can feel, that's right in front of us. We want the thing that everybody else is doing. We, we want the wide road. And when we choose it, we're like, you know what? That was pretty good. But Jesus is like, no. No, it is, it is, it's nothing compared to what I had for you. But we have no idea what we're missing out on. You guys, there, there have been so many times in my journey with Jesus where it's just again and again, I have this choice between like pumpkin day and trusting Jesus. And, and there are times, there are times that I have trusted Jesus. And I think about my life and I think about the blessings. I think about uh, my wife and my kids. What a blessing. I mean, that, that doesn't happen. You guys, I won't go into the whole story, but that does not happen if I chose pumpkin day. I had to walk away from other relationships, not knowing what the future would hold for this to even be a possibility. I mean, girls that I dated in that season prior to Jen, were, they were just fine. But I sensed Jesus asking me to trust. I think about this church and, and what it's meant to me all these years. It doesn't happen if I choose Pumpkin Day. I had to choose to trust Jesus to experience this, and so did Jen. And while, I, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, this has been very different than anything I ever imagined, it has been a deeper joy than I ever dreamed. Like there has been community and friendship and meaning and depth on levels I could have never envisioned. But while I have trusted Jesus in bits and pieces over the years, you guys, there are many times that I have not. I have chose Pumpkin Day a lot. And you know what? My life has been fine. Pretty good, actually. But I will never know what might have happened had I trusted God, I've been so blessed, but, but maybe, just maybe, I could have been a lot more blessed. I, I've seen great beauty, but maybe I could have seen more. And, and what I want you to think about today is just is this. Where are you in your life 
facing a choice between pumpkin day of some sort and trusting Jesus. I mean, you, you can do pumpkin day and it might turn out pretty good. But what if Jesus has something so much more for you? There are so many voices in our world promising happiness. There are many voices that are offering to you a way. The choice is, is not always, and let's be clear about this, the choice is not always between total evil and Jesus, right? Often the choice is far more subtle than that. It's more of a, did God really say? But if you pause long enough and you pray long enough, you know. So where in your life right now is there a tough choice to be made? And who are you going to trust? Whose voice are you going to listen to? And what are the stakes if you choose Pumpkin Day? Truth is, you probably have no idea. Father in heaven, I thank you for how good you are. I thank you for the way that you relentlessly pursue us. And, and when we make choices that are not the choices you would have for us, you love us. You still love us and you are relentless in, in pursuing us. And I thank you for the, the times in my life where I've gotten a clear sense of, of a choice that I needed to make between something right in front of me that, that felt easy and good and something that, that felt unsure but felt felt more right. I thank you for the few times in my life that I've been able to choose the thing that felt the thing that felt right and what that's led to. But I, I believe that you offer us this, you kind of offer us this again and again, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And to the extent that we choose it, there is, there is blessing that's unlocked. Not because like you punish us if we don't make the right choices, but simply we miss out on the good that's there for us. And so, God, I pray for, for anybody here that is facing something that is clear and obvious like that right now. God, would you, would you speak to us? Would you just affirm in us that there is a way, that it is good and that it leads to life to the full? And would you help us to trust you and to go that way, even if it's really unclear how it's all going to turn out? God, would you speak? Would you lead us? We need you.